This has come to the table. Bible studies from the New Testament Christian Church of Cheyenne. These studies are presented every Tuesday night at 7 p.m. at our church at 3800 East Pershing Boulevard in Cheyenne, Wyoming. If you'd like to contribute to these studies, you can make a donation at www.myntcc.org backslash Cheyenne WY dash giving. Matthew chapter 10. Now before we dive into the text, I want to make a couple of announcements. Now we've been, uh, with the exception of one Bible study so far this year, we have been the whole year in our red letter studies and in the Gospel of Matthew alone. And so if it pleases the Lord, and I'll be in prayer, but if it pleases the Lord, we're going to take a break next week from this subject matter and I really want to take us over into some Old Testament material. Now, the New Testament is good. The New Testament is the whole reason we're saved, or at least you know, the doctrine that's contained therein. But there is a tremendous amount of good in the Old Testament. And I don't want to get halfway through the year without digging into any of it. And so, again, be at the will of the Lord. Next week, we're going to take a break from Matthew 10 and our red letter studies. We're going to go over to the Old Testament and we're going to dig out some uh, very good, very edifying, instructive, informative stuff from the Old Testament. I'm leaning towards the period of the Judges, not necessarily the Book of Judges, but from that historical epic when Israel was ruled by the Judges before the kings came along and messed everything up even more. Uh, if you know anything about their history, you know what I'm talking about. But that may be, that will probably be next week. This week, I want to wrap up chapter 10, because after that, it gets into some other territory in chapter 11. But let's go ahead and finish up chapter 10 this week, and then next week we'll be elsewhere in Scripture. Again, if it pleases our Lord, that's exactly what we'll do, and everybody will be blessed. Amen? But Matthew chapter 10, the lesson from this chapter that we more or less concluded with, it was lengthy, but we concluded with it last week, was, let's just pick it up from verse 26. Jesus says, Fear them not, therefore, for there is nothing covered that shall not be revealed and hid that shall not be known. He had just finished telling his disciples that it is enough, or he just finished telling his disciples that a disciple is not above his master. Okay, the apprentice will not rise above his master. The disciple will not rise above his master. They're not above their master. He said it's enough that the disciple be as his master, that he reached the same level as his master. So where Christianity is concerned, it doesn't operate like the Sith, okay? And you fellow nerds know what I'm talking about. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, it's just bad jokes, so just forget about it. Um, but it's enough that we be as Jesus, okay? As his disciples, if we can attain to the same level, praise God. But there's no going above that. There's no transcending where the Lord is. The last guy who tried that got cast out of heaven like a bolt of lightning. You know who I'm talking about. And, uh, and he's the source of most, if not all, of our, of our ills and our woes today throughout the world, throughout the human race. So he says in verse 26, Fear them not. Fear them not, therefore. Fear not who? Fear not those that persecute you. For there is nothing covered that shall not be revealed, and hid that shall not be known. God knows everything. He sees everything. He knows what's done in a corner. He knows what's done in darkness. He knows what's done on people's computers at 1 o'clock in the morning when their spouses are asleep. <gasps> Ooh, boy, I just like threw a rock right at that one. I wasn't even trying to be subtle, was I? God knows. God knows. 
he sees. The Bible says in another place, he who made the eye, shall he not see? He who made the ear, shall he not hear? So it's impossible to hide wickedness. You can hide it from other people, but you cannot hide it from God. Nobody can. He knows everything that happens. He's the one who built the universe and set everything in it that's in it. He knows. So he goes on in verse 27. What I tell you in darkness, that speak ye in light. And what ye hear in the ear, that preach ye upon the housetops. Now you can tell what he's talking about there. Don't be ashamed. Don't be ashamed to speak what you know about God. Don't be ashamed to talk about the Bible openly. Don't be ashamed to share your faith with someone. I know the last two or three weeks, the contents of this chapter and some of the previous chapter have really talked about outreach, frankly, as Jesus sent his disciples out going door to door. It wasn't the same gospel. Jesus had not yet died, but Jesus was still sending them door to door, preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And so... It just it segues right into this. When you dare to share your faith, there are going to be a lot of people that will appreciate it, that will want to hear it, but there will be a lot of people that you will make angry just because you have the audacity to even extend an invitation. Don't be afraid of them. Don't be afraid of people that threaten you. Not that that happens all the time in this country. It very rarely happens by comparison. But don't be afraid of any kind of heat that comes down because you are openly Christian. Don't be afraid of it. Don't let it put you off. Don't let it unnerve you. He says, what I tell you in darkness, that speak in the light. And what you hear in the ear, that preach ye upon the housetops. Make it known. Shout it aloud. Because every day people are dying and are going to hell. I don't play that card often, but it's very real. And there's no escaping from that fact. It's not a fact that we like as Christians, okay? Dam damnation is terrible. It is a horror beyond imagining. But And it's, it's not a fact that Christians like. We don't take delight in the fact that there are people that are lost and dying and on their way to a Christless eternity. But it is precisely that very fate. It is the threat of that fate that it is for that reason that Jesus gave us the Great Commission. And what was the Great Commission? He gave it after he was crucified, after he rose again from the dead, and after, or before he ascended back to the Father. He said, go ye into all the world. You want to see the, 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 probably one of the most dedicated soldiers for the cause of Christ that you will ever meet in your life is a genuine, bona fide missionary. And I mean a missionary to a foreign field. It doesn't matter if it's a, a civilized foreign field or an uncivilized foreign field. Foreign is foreign, okay? One might be more comfortable than the other. But that is someone that casts themselves all together into the hands of God to do precisely what Jesus told us to do. Now, he doesn't send everybody, he doesn't call all of his disciples to go abroad into all the earth. But you got a neighborhood, don't you? You live somewhere, don't you? Somebody lives next door to you, don't they? Do they even know where you go to church? Now, I'm just asking that question. I'm not trying to stoke the fires of shame or anything. I don't operate that way, okay? Christianity isn't a shame-based religion, okay? It's a victor victorious it's a victorious and a, a well, it's a victory-based religion, to be honest with you. And it goes beyond that. It's an entire way of life. It is the way of life. But 
Do your neighbors even know where you go to church? That's just a question to answer within your own heart. Do they know about anything that you know about? Do they even know that Jesus is alive, that he was risen from the dead? Do they believe it? Have, have you ever dared share that with anyone? Long ago, when my wife and I were uh, still living over on Randy Road, it was our first year here in town, and we had, uh, we had some neighbors up the hill from us, and we had invited pretty much everybody on that street, and if they weren't home, they at least got a flyer shoved in their door. And uh, no, it wasn't some end-time scare tactic flyer either. It was just a, a simple invitation. Uh, some people, yes, I know the Bible says some people save with fear, pulling them out of the fire. But he says others have compassion, making a difference. So it's not a one-size-fits-all one technique as far as reaching out to the lost is concerned. But there was one fellow that lived right in the very next building from us and downstairs from us. If he looked up, he could see into our kitchen window. If we looked down, we could see into his kitchen window. Not that we were really trying, because you might, you might get a shock when you do that. Don't peep in your neighbor's windows. It's not good. Um, but I had talked to him about coming to church, and he came a few times. But one day, he, he came by my door. I think he'd... he'd, he'd uh, I don't even know if he'd been out to church yet, but he came, he came by my door. It was in the middle of the day. I was working from home at that time uh, for a company here in town. And I stepped outside. I sat outside with him. We chatted for a while. He told me about his background, where he came from. He came, he came out of uh, not Salt Lake, but pretty close to Salt Lake City, Utah. And the more we talked, the more I realized this man has never been told the gospel. He's in his mid-twenties. Mid-twenties. And come out of Utah. You know there's some people there that at least talk about the Bible. They don't have it right. They're, they're wrong by a million miles. But at least they talk about it, you know? But he had never heard the simple gospel message. And so I asked him, I said, you're pretty much a blank slate where that's concerned, isn't it? And he said, yes. So I said something like, well, you got a minute? And so I just opened it up to him. Now, this isn't glory on my part. We didn't pray for salvation right there. We did when he came to church, though. Praise God. He came to the altar. He prayed for salvation. But, and now he, he's, he's living back in Utah where his family's at. But for quite a few minutes there, just sitting right out on our front deck, I just shared with him the simple gospel. It's not complicated. The human race is lost, right? We know that. You can tell that just by watching the news. We are busted. We are a very broken species of people, Okay. Jesus came to fix that. He died to pay for our sins. He rose again from the grave. He ascended back to the Father. He ever lives to make intercession for us. He sits at the right hand of the Father even now as we speak. A human being on the throne of the universe. Let that sink in. Because when Jesus went back to the Father, he went back in body, didn't he? Didn't he? Okay, I'm just making sure we know that, because, if man, if we don't know that, I am missing some marks, and we need, to, we need to go back and have some remedial teachings, okay? He rose again physically from the grave. His body was resurrected, and in that same body, he returned to the Father. Guess what? He still wears that body. No, he doesn't still bear the prints in his hands, I don't think. I don't think he's still bearing all of the marks and scars. He did when he showed himself to Thomas. I don't think he does now. It's a long time to carry your wounds, 2,000 years and perhaps more. We have no idea when he's coming back, although it feels like he's coming back tomorrow or next week sometime, to be honest with you. But we, we honestly don't know. But that's a human being. 
That's God the Son in a human body sitting on the throne of the universe making intercession for you and me. Man, how can you go wrong? How can you go wrong? Let's move on. So he tells us what we hear in the ear, that preachy from the housetops. In other words, share your faith. Don't be ashamed and don't be afraid. And that's the next verse. He says, fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul. In other words, don't fear men. Don't fear what people can do to you. I think we, we rode this horse pretty hard last week. Was don't fear what other people can do to you because their power ends at the grave, doesn't it? They can only kill you. They can drag it out and make it awful, but most of the time they don't do that. Most of the time they kill you like they killed Stephen, if they're going to kill you at all. I know this is gory stuff, but Jesus talked about it, so why avoid it? He said, fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. In other words, if you're going to be motivated by fear, at least fear the one that you ought to fear. You know what I mean? Because God has all power. He's bigger than all of us. He's older than all of us. He's wiser and he's stronger than all of us. Nobody wins in a fight against him. Everybody that's ever tried, they might think they win, but ultimately, in the end, they lose and they lose everything. They lose big. They lose in the ultimate way, in the worst possible way. So he says, fear him rather. If you're going to fear, then fear him. But then, in time, let love replace that, will you? Let love replace that. Because fear doesn't keep people in the long term. It really doesn't. You start, to think, you, start, you start to get to thinking, um, well, man, is hell really that bad? Well, yes, actually it is. In fact, it's worse. It's worse. And then there's a place even worse than that that you read about over in the Revelation. It's called the Lake of Fire. You don't want to go there. There's nobody partying there. I don't care what, who jokes about it. I'll be with all my friends in hell. <laughs> he said, whistling past the graveyard, if you understand that expression. No, don't be partying with him. We read about a guy who went there and read about him over in the Gospels, a certain rich man. No, he didn't go there because he was rich. He went there because he had a lousy relationship with God. He did not, he was uh, during the time of the law. He did not obey the law. He had no faith in God. He had no relationship with God. Jesus said he died and then in hell he lifted up his eyes. And he said, I'm, torn, I'm skipping some of the details but, or some of the narrative between him and, and another person. But he said, I am tormented in these flames. It's not a place of relaxation, and it's not a place of purification either. It is a place of ultimate containment, and it is a place, ultimately, what it empties out into is a place of judgment. So trust me, you don't want anything to do with that place. You don't want anything to do with anything that'll, that would send you to that place. Just leave that in your past. That was in your past. If you love the Lord and you believed on the Lord Jesus Christ now, that's your present. Let it stay your present and let it be your future also. Amen? Amen. All right. So he says, fear not them that are able to kill the body. And then he goes on in verse 29. This is where we concluded. He says, are not two sparrows sold for a farthing? And one of them shall not fall to the ground without your father. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear ye not, therefore... Ye are, more, ye are of more value than many sparrows. So all of this is under the heading of proclaim the truth. doesn't matter if you're a called preacher or not or a minister or not. That sort of thing isn't reserved just unto, oh, what is it? that So they call us in some cultures, Reverend Ryder, 
men of the cloth. That's an antiquated term. Does anybody even still use that? Is it pretty much died? I hope it has. It's kind of pretentious if you ask me. Man of the cloth, what does that mean? Everybody wears cloth. At least I hope they do, or wearing something anyway. So, he's saying, fear not. Share your faith, proclaim the truth. Whatever your calling is, whatever God has made you to be, share your faith and proclaim the truth. Be wise how you do it. And when heat comes your way for it, don't be afraid. He says, because God knows all about it. He knows every time you're rebuffed for your faith. He knows every time you're ignored or even mocked for your faith. He sees all of it because he said, he's using the sparrow there. He says, there's not a sparrow that falls to the ground that God doesn't know about. So he knows about everything that happens to you. Because sometimes in persecution, you get to feeling lonely. Right? How many of you have read about Elijah? Okay. Well, you know what he did. Well, he did a lot of things, but one of the most famous things that he's known for doing was standing up against a bunch of false prophets. And these were prophets of a heathen, false god, an idol by the name of Baal, B-A-A-L. Okay? I think I spelled that right. It's kind of hard to get that wrong. B-A-L-L would be Baal. So, yeah, I think it was Baal. But he stood up against their false prophets and he made a challenge. And it was very gutsy what he did. But he stood on the promises of God. He had faith and God answered his faith. And he answered his prayer by fire. And the prophets of Baal ended up losing their lives. It was a tremendous victory. It was really awesome how it all went down. I mean, it really was. That would have been top headline on the Drudge Report nowadays. It really would have been if you know what I'm talking about. But right after that tremendous victory though, Queen Jezebel opened up her mouth. This woman had a body count. She, she was known. Well, Queen Jezebel issued a threat. It was a death threat to Elijah. I'm going to do this and this and this and this to you because she was all on Baal's side. She was a devil worshiper. And Elijah got scared. It blows my mind how that can happen, but sometimes that happened. I mean, huge victory. Fire from heaven burned up the altar and everything, and it was tremendous. But then he got scared and he ran for his life, and he was, he was cowering in a cave because wicked, evil Jezebel was going to come get him. And so he prayed. And then God got on his case. What's your problem? I'm paraphrasing. What's your problem, Elijah? Well, I'm, uh, I'm the last of your people. I'm the last of your faithful people. And now uh, this wicked queen is seeking my life. And God told him, I've got 7,000 people you don't even know about that haven't bowed the knee to Baal. So you might feel lonely at times, believer, especially when you're working on jobs surrounded by the wicked and the ungodly, surrounded by casual sinners who, who give no thought to their sins. Not that they're trying hard to be evil, they just have no knowledge of their need, no conscious knowledge of their need, and someone needs to share it with them. It's easy to feel like you're alone. Don't. Because, first of all, Everybody in here believes at least something of the same thing you do. Hopefully most, if not all, the same thing you do, right? I, I can pretty much say everybody in here at least names the name of Christ, correct? Praise God. So, your life backs that up. I call you brother. I call you sister so you're not alone. And not just that, this is just our local church. We have many churches across the country. And not just that, but it ain't just us. We're not exclusivists. 
There are people that God has reached and that God has saved in places that we've never even heard of. So don't feel alone. And even if all of that isn't enough to give you comfort, okay? Even if all of that is not enough to give you comfort, remember the Holy Ghost. Because as Jesus was departing this earth, what did he say? I'm going to send you another comforter. He was talking about the Holy Spirit. And it was a fulfillment of prophecy from the Old Testament all the way back there in Joel and in other places where he says, I will pour my spirit out. I will pour out my spirit upon men and women and sons and daughters and so forth. He said in the latter days. Well, we've been in the latter days for a couple of thousand years now. We're a whole lot closer to the end now than we ever have been. But the Holy Ghost was promised to the church. Now, I'm going to take a gamble here tonight, but it's my job. I really don't have a choice. I'm going to do what God has called me to do. Some folks in here have the Holy Spirit living in them. Some do not. You have a measure of it. You received it at salvation, but you have not been baptized in the Holy Ghost. That's not the same as water baptism. And I'm not pulling this out of the air. I'm not pulling this out of some crazy wonky donkey doctrines book from some other group. This is all... This is all straight Bible. And it's a promise. And it happened in the book of Acts. And it happened more than once in the book of Acts. Some people just say, oh, that was just for the, that was just for the first disciples and the apostles to get the, church, uh, to get the church booted, to get this thing kick-started and off the ground. No, it was for every single believer. There is no shred, not so much as a single hint in Scripture, that tongues shall cease while we're here on the earth. Because as long as they're sinners, and not just tongues, but just the other manifestations of the Spirit, okay? It's not all about tongues, so please don't think that we're going full-blown, chandelier-swinging, pew-running Pentecostal here, okay? We're not doing that. We're not doing that. But the baptism of the Holy Ghost is for the whole church. And that means for every living, breathing believer in the whole church. Why are we talking about that? Why are we talking about that? Because you need it. You need it. I'm not saying you're not going to go to heaven if you haven't experienced it, okay? That's, it, it's not the same thing as salvation. Salvation is salvation. That's what gets us into the kingdom. So I'm not trying to muddle these things up and make it confusing. But there at the beginning of the book of Acts, they already believed on Jesus at the beginning of the book of Acts, didn't they? And Jesus had already died and he had already risen again. The only thing left for him to do was to return to the Father, okay? So like two-thirds of the entire passion, as some people refer to the, that, that whole episode, the ordeal of Christ and what he went through, two-thirds of it had already been accomplished. And Jesus said, tarry ye in Jerusalem until you be endued or imbued. I always forget which word it actually uses. It means the same thing. Until you be endued with power from on high. You need the Holy Ghost. Because he is, he is at least three things to you, okay? And I'll take this right out of Scripture. He is, as Jesus said, comfort. And he is power. And that's what a lot of believers... I'm not saying they're bad. I'm not saying they're wrong. I'm just saying they're lacking something. A lot of believers lack is power. And that's why they're always struggling to do the right thing. You understand what I'm talking about? 
And, that's, and it's so important. That's why Jesus, he'd already given his disciples the Great Commission. He had already said, go ye. But he had, already, he had also said to them, you stay in Jerusalem until you be endued with power. And then over in Acts, that's when it happened. Now by that time, Jesus had already gone. And he had to, because he had even made mention of that. He said, if I don't go, because his disciples were all bummed out about the fact that he was going to depart and return to the Father. Understandably so. They'd been through everything that they'd been through with Jesus. But Jesus said, if I don't leave, then the Comforter will not come. So he had to go. Then he sent the Comforter. Who's the Comforter? The Holy Ghost. The Holy Spirit, same thing, different name, same person. That's the third person in the Trinity, okay, is the Holy Ghost. And so precious and so, I don't even know what words in the English language to use to describe him. Uh, and so holy, yes, but that's a given. All of God is holy, okay, but there's something particular about the Holy Ghost, there's something particular and singular about the Spirit of God. I say, we're all the, they're all the same person. No, they're not. No, they're not. Jesus warned the people, and this is red-letter studies, so even though I'm off the text, we're still in red-letter studies because this is what Jesus said. Jesus warned uh, many of the people around him at, at one particular point in the Gospel, and I believe he was directing this at the Pharisees because the Pharisees were forever sticking their feet in their mouths, okay? He warned the Pharisees. He said, all manner of blasphemy, some of you know where I'm going with this, some of you don't. All manner of blasphemy shall be forgiven men. He said, if someone blasphemes the Father, it'll be forgiven him, or it can be forgiven him. Okay? If somebody blasphemes the Son, it can be forgiven him. But then he said, but blasphemy of the Holy Ghost shall not be forgiven. Listen to this. This is, this is a heavy stone I'm about to drop, okay? Blasphemy of the Father, blasphemy of the Son, God is willing to forgive by the blood of Jesus Christ. Praise God. Amen. Right? But he said, blasphemy of the Holy Ghost shall not be forgiven. If a man blasphemes the Holy Ghost, Jesus said he is in danger of hell fire. Now, the very first thing that the devil has attempted to tell one or more of you right now sitting in the pew next to you is, you blaspheme the Holy Ghost. You know you've done it. You know you've done it. You're checking yourself out right now. I guarantee you, you've done it. That's exactly what the devil's telling you right now. Because the instant that you mention an unforgivable sin, people panic. Because that's what the devil wants them to do. So let me just put your mind at ease, okay? If you had ever actually knowingly, understandingly blasphemed the Holy Ghost, sp spoken blasphemy against the Holy Ghost, then you would be of a reprobate mind and you wouldn't be in this church. Because you wouldn't care Tuppence, to use a British slang phrase. I don't know what that means. I don't know if it's Tupperware or some kind of a dessert. You wouldn't care tuppence about God or righteousness or good or holiness or church or anything that had to do with God. You would care nothing about. Because reprobate minds have no interest in that sort of thing except they seek to, they seek to insinuate themselves into it to corrupt it. There are some people that are like that. So... If you're here because you have a corrupting motive, then you have a problem. But you understand what I'm saying. The whole reason I even brought that out wasn't to scare anybody, wasn't to try to get you to start checking yourself on that, or I don't think anyone in here has done that. It, it, that is an extreme line. But the only reason I bring that out is, is to 
to impart an understanding that there's something different and special about the Holy Ghost, about the nature of the Holy Ghost himself. Because he said that if you blaspheme that fellow, there's no forgiveness for that. There's just no forgiveness for that. Because the Holy Ghost is the most inoffensive, the most patient, the most... Goodness, how do you say this? There's, there's probably no end to adjectives that could be spoken about him. You know, he's, when you see him at all in the Gospels, what form did he take? Anybody who knows? It's a rare bit of interaction here. And you read over in the Gospels when Jesus went to be baptized at the very beginning of his ministry when he went to be baptized in the river by John the Baptist. And then the voice of the Father spoke out of heaven and said, This is my Son in whom I am well pleased in so many words. And then the Holy Spirit appeared in the form of a dove or it descended like a dove and it landed, it lighted upon Jesus and then it was gone because it had gone into him. That was Jesus receiving the Holy Spirit. And if Jesus needed the power and the comfort of the Holy Spirit during his days on earth, how much more do we? Jesus lived a faultless life, no sin. He was tempted in all ways as a man just like we were. He knows what it's like to suffer, but he never caved. And yet he needed the Holy Ghost also. Brethren, sisters, we need the Holy Ghost. We need the Holy Ghost. So, if you haven't received him and you want him, come talk to me. No, I don't have some magical power. Right? I'm not going to smack you in the head and knock you down and say, or anything, and then have you jump up jabbering in tongues like it's something that... You know. Now, tongues are real, okay? But it's as the Spirit gives utterance. It's not as, as we just start making stuff up like so many do. And, and it gives every good thing from the Spirit a bad name when you've got groups out there that just turn it into a circus act, okay? It's, it's, like, it's like hanging Christmas lights on a gold statue. It's a gold statue. You don't need Christmas lights on it. You know what I'm saying? That's a bad metaphor, but it, you kind of get the idea of what I'm trying to say. Start praying for the Holy Ghost baptism. Go over to the book of Acts. I challenge you. Go over to the book of Acts. Start reading in there. And keep reading until you've encountered at least two episodes in which people received the Holy Ghost since they believed. It, again, I can't overemphasize this because there's a lot of confusion out there on this subject. It's not the same as salvation. And it's not essential for salvation. But I'll tell you right now, without the Holy Ghost, you're just going to have a much harder time living for God. Some of you know what I'm saying. <laughs> Maybe from experience, I, I can tell you. Now, some people, they're saved. They lived for God for years before they experienced the Holy Ghost baptism. Some people, they received the Holy Ghost within two or three minutes of praying through salvation. And sometimes it happens back to back. Sometimes it happens a year apart. With me, it was like a month. Ask me sometime, I'll tell you how it happened with me. It was amazing. It was amazing. And don't be afraid of it either. Don't be afraid of it. There's nothing to fear. The Holy Spirit is the least fearful, is the least fearful person in all of creation. Your bad-tempered neighbor is more fearful. I'm not pointing at you, brother. Sorry. You're not, you live on another part of town. But your, your bad-tempered neighbor is more fearful than the Holy Spirit. In him is peace and power and comfort 
and a, a, a tremendous enabling to do right, not wrong. I, I'm t- I can't talk this up enough. And words utterly fail. They really do. The best of languages cannot really uh, express what it's like. And I'm not trying to make it sound like something that it isn't. But you need it. It's for you. He is for you. He is a person. He is very real. He is alive. And he wants to dwell in you. And when he does, he says, Fear ye not, therefore, ye are more valuable than many sparrows. So if, if there isn't a bird that falls to the ground without God's knowledge, and God counts them as valuable, how much more valuable does he count you? So when you feel lonely in the midst of persecution, if you have it, when you feel lonely just because it feels like you're the only one of the people you know outside of church that are serving God, remember, God knows, and you are worth every bit of his time, every bit of his instruction, of his effort, and every bit of his love. You are worth it. You are worth more than many sparrows. You're worth more than the trees up in the Pacific Northwest that are practically the regional religion up there. You're worth more than animals. You're worth more than PETA would make you uh, think that you're worth, okay? You're worth it. You're worth it. And let me say it one more time. Let this sink down real deep into your ears. You're worth it. I wouldn't have come here. Those two folks in the back wouldn't have come here, Reverend DeRyder and his wife. Other people wouldn't have answered the call of God and gone where God sent them. You're worth it. Never let the devil tell you or convince you that you're not well, I got a question or I need prayer or whatever, but I, just, just, I don't want to bother anybody with it. You're worth it. I don't want to beat that drum too much more, but you are. Verse 32, Jesus says, Whosoever therefore shall confess me before men, Him will I confess also before my Father which is in heaven. But whosoever shall deny me before men, him will I also deny before my Father which is in heaven. So it's a very simple reward. It's a very simple reward. You maintain, you stand on the promises of God, you stand on your faith and be not removed from the confidence of your profession in Jesus Christ. You confess Jesus to others, Jesus will confess you to the Father. But you deny Him... He'll deny you. I don't know any way to soften that. That's just exactly what he says, okay? And the same goes for me, any other believer walking on the face of the earth. Think not, verse 34. Think not that I am come to send peace on earth. I came not to send peace, but a sword. For I am come to set a man at variance against his father and the daughter against her mother and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's foes shall be they of his own household. Now let me stop right there. I know that we need to be stopping, but this is, 
This is critical right here, okay? This is critical. He says, because this is confusing, right off the bat. You read it and you're like, wait a second, I thought Jesus was the Prince of Peace. I thought that when you have Jesus on the throne of your heart, you have the Prince of Peace on the throne of your heart, and then you have peace in your heart, and you have peace in your life, and you have peace in your family, and, 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 and so on. Yes, but, okay? Let's explain this. I'll read it again and then we'll break it down. He says, think not that I am come to send peace on earth. I am not come to send peace, but a sword. Well, what's one sword? What's one sword he may very well be talking about? The word of the Lord. Okay, because this thing divides all kinds of things, doesn't it? This thing divides asunder the soul and the spirit. This thing, this thing divides asunder believers and unbelievers, even those of the same house. And we'll get to that a little bit more here in a second. He says, for I am come, verse 35, I'm come to set a man at variance against his father and the daughter against her mother and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's foes shall be they of his own household. Wait a second, why is that? I, I thought that there was supposed to be peace in my life now. Well, yes, but has everyone in your household received Christ? You see where we're going with this? Has everyone believed on Jesus? Or have only one or two? That's where the division comes in. It's not that Christ is busting down the door of a house or of a family and, and causing division between people because he wants to tear a family apart. That's not what he's saying. But where Christ is and the devil is, there's going to be a problem, isn't there? And you see that most viciously and mercilessly in a lot of mixed marriages. When a believer is married to an unbeliever. And ideally that happens because it was two sinners that got married and then one of them got saved and the other one didn't. Okay, that's usually how a mixed marriage actually happens because as Christians we're commanded not to be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. So if you're a single Christian and you're looking for a mate, whether it's a husband or a wife, make sure it's gender appropriate, thank you, okay? But if you're a single Christian and looking for someone to team up with for the rest of your life, if you deliberately marry a sinner, you have sinned yourself because you have bound yourself, yoked yourself together. You know what a yoke is, right? We got enough cattle in this state that we all know. It's that big thing that they uh, attach to the to the neck of oxen or of cattle or of whatever. They bind two or more of them together so they can pull a heavy load. Well, what's a marriage but two people sharing the yoke of life, right? And you help each other out. You strengthen one another, hopefully, and you're a blessing to one another and you're not destructive to one another and so on. But if, a, if an unmarried Christian marries, knowingly, willingly marries an unsaved person, then they have absolutely gone against the word of God and they've yoked themselves. Now, it's still a legitimate marriage. It's binding. You can't just divorce them because they're not saved. Oh, well, I, uh, I, I'm tired of you. I'm going to take you. They're not a shirt from Walmart. You can just take back. No questions asked. OK, but be careful not to put yourself in that situation because, man, if your house ever knew peace, it won't know it again for a while, if at all. Because there's a tremendous amount of conflict that comes from one person serving God and another one not and them sharing the same roof. I wouldn't even get a roommate. I wouldn't even get a roommate that wasn't saved. I really wouldn't. 
Because you're just inviting troubles and problems. Oh, well, I'll witness to him and get him saved. Maybe you will. But why not do that before you yoke yourself together with someone in a business partnership, in a, in a, in, in a, in a lease or a rental or in a mortgage? Oh, man, that's even worse. Uh, or, or in a marriage. You understand what we're saying? Be careful who you bind yourself to. Because it... Depending on what kind of commitment it is, it might be for life. And even if it's not something that's supposed to be for life, it can cost you in spades to get out of it. He said, a man's foes shall be they of his own household. Now I can speak from experience on this. Because first my brother got saved. My parents didn't. That caused problems right off the bat. Then I got saved. And that caused more problems. And, uh, and round about early 1995, it came to a head in a very bad way. Ultimately, it turned out for the good. It turned out for the good. I stood my ground. I stood my ground. I was a grown adult anyway and you know, living on my own. So that ultimately, you, know, you, just, you make your choices. But it depends on the kind of relationship you have with your parents, if you want to burn it to the ground or not. You know what I'm saying? But I stood my ground. And everything ended up working out. But getting to that point was excruciating. It was very, very painful. It was very, very difficult. But Jesus said, if you'll confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father. And he said, and I think we mentioned this last week, he said, whosoever endureth until the end shall be saved. Now, the context was a little bit different that he was talking about there. It dealt more with future persecutions or whatever, but you can apply it across the board. If you endure persecution there is a crown of reward. And no persecution is fun. No persecution feels good. But if you endure, there is a reward. There is a reward. So, if you find yourself in a divided house, you because of the faith and they because they don't want it, stand your ground. Keep the faith. Do not be afraid or discouraged or feel lonely. You got allies, and they're praying for you. And there's a whole host of angels that have your back also. Now, that's not a promise that everybody's going to then accept the faith and everything will get smoothed out. Okay? But the problem gets solved one way or another eventually. God sees to that. God sees to that. And there's other areas that we could take that in. But we're going to close with this, okay, because he was talking about a divided house. He said, he that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. That was pretty blunt, wasn't it? But Jesus said it. I didn't even add a dramatized musical track to that. It's right there in very plain English. He said, he that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he that taketh not his cross and followeth after me is not worthy of me. And he caps it off with verse 39. He that findeth his life shall lose it. And he that loseth his life for my sake shall find it. So let me just be clear on this. This words of Christ. We've read them twice. At least that first line. We read it twice. So you heard it too. And it was, if you're following along in your Bible, you're reading King James, hopefully you are. If you're not, it should still mean basically the same thing. I really encourage you, get yourself a King James. It's the one 
That's pretty much the only one that I trust in the English language. There are other good ones in other languages. I don't trust any other ones in, in English. But he said it right here. He that loveth father or, more, or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Does that mean that there's something that's more important than my family? Yes. Yes. Now, family is important. Don't misunderstand me. Family is critically important. If you've been in, if you've been in any of our uh, School of Virtue classes on marriage, you, uh, you know that. Because we've talked about it. We've talked about it at length. Family is very important. And the, the, the man of the family, this is the head of the family, meaning the husband, the father, etc. Okay, and he has responsibilities there. But you can't love your kids more than God. Now, that doesn't mean don't love your kids. Okay, don't take that and run into the other ditch, okay? Love your kids, please. My goodness, love your children. We're supposed to. It's weird if you don't. It's unnatural. And likewise, if you love your mom and dad more than God, there's a problem. It doesn't mean don't love your mom and dad. I love mine dearly. I love my daughter dearly. I took a bullet for her. You can't, the, the bottom line is there, you can't love anyone or anything more than God. Because what were we talking about this last weekend? Who are you going to answer to when you die? You going to answer to mom? You going to answer to dad? No. Not going to answer to the boss. Not going to answer to Governor Mead. Not going to answer to Mayor Orr. You're not going to answer to anyone. You're certainly not going to answer to your children when you die. You're going to answer to God. So who should be the ultimate recipient of our affections? It should be Him. Who should be our highest priority? It should be Him. Now again, that doesn't mean to the, the, the neglect, the destructive neglect of your own family if you're responsible for family, okay? Please don't take what I'm saying and run to an extreme. But when there has to be a choice to be made, I've got to please mom or dad, or I gotta please God, you better please God. Or I gotta please my kids, or I gotta please God, you better please God. And I'm not just throwing that out there without sympathy. I've been there myself, I've been tested on it myself. If you keep God first, there will be a blessing, there will be a reward. And you never know. You make your stand, even in the midst of family, you might even see them get saved. Thank you for listening to Come to the Table, Bible studies from the New Testament Christian Church of Cheyenne. Included in these presentations are red-letter studies on the life and teachings of our Lord Jesus Christ, historical studies on the Old Testament, topical studies on biblical doctrines, and practical studies on Christian life. If you enjoyed this presentation, you can support our efforts by contributing at www.myntcc.org backslash Cheyenne WY giving.